This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people saying, no thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. It has just gone 5pm alongside Guy in London. I'm Jonathan Farrow here in New York. Mr Johnson, good day to you, sir. Good day. So what's catching the eye today? Uh, A little bit of movement in the pound, concerns about uh, what Geoffrey Cox is going to bring back. Um, Other than that, I'm really struggling to find some direction. I thought the Chinese stuff, John, earlier on was interesting, but I wasn't massively surprised by it. Uh, and it does seem that that everybody's still kind of back focusing on, on the trade narrative, looking for a sense of direction for these markets. So no longer targeting one specific point, targeting a range, 6% to 6.5%. I'm left wondering, Guy, whether that means the new target is 6.25%. And whether That's the average that, from whether, Bloomberg. So whether they'll hit that right on the money is 625 Yep. Um, the other thing I'm looking at is just a resilient U.S. economy. U.S. services, so this is the non-manufacturing ISM, 59.7. That is a really, really strong print for the month of February. And just gives you an idea that if there was any slowdown into the back end of last year associated with the financial market fallout, that's a real good sign of a rebound. In fact, globally, services is looking quite good, including even Europe. And that data we saw playing out on the continent as well. I would say for Europe, though, much, much tougher call for the ECB because this is an open economy, reliant on trade, running a current account surplus. This is an economy that isn't hiding from the global growth slowdown. And I think it tees up a really interesting meeting on Thursday. Absolutely. I find it fascinating how much the data is all over the shop at the moment, though. The retail sales number out of the US a few weeks back, really negative. Then we get a services number like today that's really positive. You've also had positive numbers out from Coles as well and some of the other retailers. I, I, I kind of, and then you look at South Korea, you look at Taiwan, the I, technology, the data around that's not looking. I just feel that the data at the moment is really hard to get to get your arms around. We'll talk to Paul Dobson about this, just uh, the story uh, in just a moment, get his take on what is going on. In the meantime, though, we need to get the the headlines. Charlie Pellet is going to deliver those. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Bank of England Governor Mark Carney says the UK has made, quote, constructive developments in preparing for a no-deal Brexit, though the economic impact of that would still be substantial. Carney told a House of Lords committee today authorities have taken steps to protect derivative markets, reduce financial risk, and minimize trade frictions. Tesla shares in the U.S. continue a steep sell-off following CEO Elon Musk's surprise move to close most of the electric car maker's stores and shift to online-only sales. Sources tell Bloomberg many sales personnel first found out about the decision when Tesla published a public blog post last week. And Rolls-Royce is having a tough time or a hard time meeting demand for its Cullinan sport utility vehicle as the high-end automaker's biggest ever model has proved popular with its ultra-rich clientele. The Rolls-Royce CEO told Bloomberg of the Geneva Auto Show production of the SUV, which starts at £247,000 before customization, is booked solid until the fourth quarter of 2019. Latest from the news desk, Guy Johnson, back to you. 
before customization, I imagine that pretty much every single Rolls Royce that comes out of the Chichester plant uh, has some degree of customization. And one would hope so at that price tag. I would. Well, that's just the basic one. Yeah, exactly. You exactly. Of, uh, you go from there. And it, it's funny. I'm more of a tube guy, more of a DLR guy, but I saw a picture of that particular vehicle. I want one, and when Jonathan Farrow hits the lottery or when he retires, he's buying me one. Why is it always about me? Well, there you go. Why isn't it about you? But it 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 looks. Have you seen the pictures of this thing? It is. A, I have a nice. It, it is a gorgeous looking automobile. Saw a beautiful Bugatti. A picture yeah. of a beautiful Bugatti doing the rounds. Is that the new one? That's the yeah. That's the the kind of the Batmobile one. That, that looks phenomenal. Yeah, that looks great, and I'm it's very very cool. happy. Something else, actually, Charlie Pallet. This is fantastic news for our London listeners. There is a rumor, some speculation, that in April JetBlue will announce transatlantic flights. I saw that speculation. That too caught my eye and my ear. However, I've got one major gripe against JetBlue. It's my opinion only, and that is that whatever aircraft they would use would be a narrow body aircraft. Flying, flying on long flights, I like wide-body aircraft. Just a personal opinion that I just want to throw in there. But they've managed to get a very nice business-class cabin yep. into a, a narrow-body plane. Yeah, I know, but you've you, you got to have a ferro-class salary to be able to sit up well, front. No, I'm the guy well, no, that's, that's the point. Clear, that's the point. Yeah. You don't. And let's stop talking about what I may or may not earn, Charlie, because it's not what you think it is. And you keep bringing it up. <laughs> and it's really annoying me because I can't afford to fly business. The company pays for these business class flights and for our listeners whose company pays for their business class flights i imagine increasingly they will be disappointed by the offering of a certain british carrier and i would say that offering guy has gone somewhat downhill um quite rapidly over the i last don't know of years. i couldn't possibly comment on who you're talking about here but i will say that i spoke to the JetBlue ceo a while back and Basically, this is them rolling out their mint class, which yep. they which they have in the United States uh, for the long haul flights uh, on the Atlantic. He says he was scandalised by the amount of money it costs to fly business across the Atlantic. Um, the the legacy carriers make a lot of money on the on these flights, and he thinks he could significantly drop it, potentially kind of circa fifty percent to get a flatbed across the Atlantic, but, but which guy, I have to... Yep. Just just to be clear here, we're, we're, we're talking about the business class offering. There have been at least three airlines that I can think of in recent memory that have tried an all-business-class service. EOS was one that came to mind. Uh, I can't think of the names of the other two. Those failed, so... Well, these were relatively small airlines, not backed yeah. by a substantial operation yeah. in the United States. Without, with, with also they can they they already have this this mint operation running. They effectively fly long haul con- uh, from one side of the to continent California. to the next. Right. So, so it, it, this is not a stretch for them to be able to do this in terms of the logistics surrounding it. Setting yeah. up an airline from scratch and not having the scale, for instance, to hedge fuel costs, uh, to deal with with labor unions, etc. I, they have the scale. It's run by a Brit, remember, so so he has some degree of interest. So the speculation in this born out of the fact that on April 10th, the carrier said it would hold a chat about JetBlue's vision and strategy. And there's been a lot of speculation around this guy, especially when you spoke to the CEO as well about what they do next. I think it'd be a great move um, for a lot of our listeners. Yeah. This will be another option potentially so when, for them. But whenever you met, whenever you mention JetBlue and talk about these kinds of things, you get a reader spike yeah. on the Bloomberg.
Yeah. People are really interested. That that said, and I don't want to drop my point to the to to the point though, guy, about narrow body versus wide body. Does anybody care beyond me? Does that matter to anybody, especially on Not a me. long haul flight like that? Not me. I know All they're right. slightly, but they feel slightly more stable. But I no. All right, I, I like being able to get up and walk around, but that's just that's just me, perhaps. All right, Charlie, thank you. My pleasure, sir. Thank you very much. And guy, and the other big issue as well, I think, is the gates. Where do they fly into? How difficult will it be to get a slot at Heathrow? Probably quite difficult at Heathrow. Um, yeah, I think it would be interesting to see where they would ultimately fly into. Um, I, there are potentially slots available, but I would have thought Gat would be a more obvious option. Um, then, then, then the decision starts yeah. to, you know, do I want to fly into Gatwick? Gatwick do is I? getting better, and remember they are upgrading the rail service. Um, when does so that I would finish? Have thought well, it's 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 I, basically if you take a look at the schedule, kind of at the moment down on that Brighton line, they are spending an awful lot of time with that line closed, and the reason they are closing that line is because they are upgrading it, uh, and and Gatwick will will feature as part of that. I agree, Gatwick is in some ways a less pleasurable experience, but in in other ways, like if you're going on the railway, I think it's actually reasonably really good to get to, and into the city, you could take a train into London Bridge which is actually a reasonably attractive option if you're flying across the Atlantic. Get off at Gatwick, get on the train. That's a good point. Come into to London Bridge, walk across London Bridge with everybody else, and you're in the square mile. Should we talk about markets next? We should probably do that. Paul Dobson's sitting here twiddling his thumbs. Patiently. Patiently he is a patient it. man. He is definitely a patient man. Uh, we're going to talk about, yeah, what's been happening with the pound today. We need to tee up what's happening with the ECB. The global economic data story is also worth, worth focusing on as well. I think it's really confusing. I think it's really hard to get your arms around exactly what is happening with the global economy. If you take a look at the surprise index, definitely dropping. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. It is 10 past five. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. John Farrow in New York. I'm Guy Johnson joining him here in London. Joining me in the studio here in London is Paul Dobson joining us from our Markets Live team. Paul, I just want to come and get to this data story. I think the data is really all over the shop at the moment. Mm -hmm. We've got US services data today really strong. Generally, services data are looking okay around the economy, uh, around the world, sorry, the global economy. If you take a look at the manufacturing data, it's weak. Um, But if I take a look at data that's coming out, for instance, from South Korea, super weak at the moment. Uh, The Chinese have just downgraded their uh, expectations in terms of where they see their economy going. I'm less concerned about that. But I'm, I'm trying to get an, a handle on where the global economy is. Do I look at the services story or do I look at the manufacturing story? Yeah, yeah manufacturing certainly seems depressed. Uh, I guess the, the problem when you're trying to assess all of this is there are so many kind of things that are resolvable that are still there. I know I go on about this a lot, but, you know, if you think manufacturing is probably hurt in part, at least, by concerns about international trade um, and and tariffs and sanctions and protectionism and all the rest of it, then that might be fixed and it might come back pretty pretty strong, um, you know, with the click of a finger's the signing of a couple of documents. Uh, Another thing, you know, kind of like going on for investors is they know that the current situation is bad enough that central banks are starting to take action. They're also encouraged by the fact that central banks are taking action, you know, specifically in the UK and in Europe, you know, there's there's a lot held back because we're waiting for a Brexit deal. If there was a Brexit deal, again, you know, kind of like everything could ping um, in, into a much better uh, prospect. The, you know, the environment could clear up relatively quickly from, you know, what you've got to what you've got to think is actually a pretty miserable looking set of data that, that's out there at the moment. They have the, the Citigroup economic surprise 
size index, which measures kind of whether data is beating or missing um, analyst estimates. And for the global measure, it's the lowest since 2013. So that shows you that still economists haven't really got to grips with this, how the extent of the slowdown, but probably by the time that they have and things start to recover, you know, the there will have been, you know, kind of like already a reaction to turn turn the economy around as well. Really hard to get a gauge on what is actually driving markets at the moment, Paul. Guy mentioned this earlier about the data, getting it, it's difficult to get your hands around the data, yeah. but in the United States, a really decent print not, on the non-manufacturing ISM, <laughs> pretty decent, the market's not getting a bid. Um, yeah. Very it's not strong. that hard, Jonathan. Well, walk We've me got... through it then. Come on then, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us. Reveal all. Well, the Give central me tomorrow's bank... prices. What's going Cent- on? The central banks have basically said they're doing nothing, right? You've got very low yields everywhere. You've still got plenty of cash sloshing about in the economy. You've got very easy financial conditions. And, you know, the central bank's got your back. So what's going on in markets is the carry trade. You know, people are reaching for yield. No, the emerging I markets all are doing of that, well. Paul. I'm yes. just saying, why aren't we bid today off the back of a really solid print in America? Great well, we data been, out of America. Today, today, one day, one day move. I get that. I'm just trying to say it's difficult to understand the price action of the last couple of days. Let I me think finish, probably, Paul. Just let me get the question <laughs> out. The last couple of days has been difficult to understand. Positive trade news, positive data, market struggling. I've got so much to, to say, and you just kept going on about these aeroplanes, you know. <laughs> um, I think if... You know, kind of like markets have probably pulled themselves back to a situation where it requires some more impetus to keep going from here. We've had a pretty strong V-shaped recovery. We've had, like I was saying, you know, this big stretch for yield for emerging markets, for, uh, you know, kind of uh, higher yielding bonds, a lot of compression, uh, easy financial conditions, encouraging people to go back into credit and those kinds of things. Uh, probably, you know, now what we need, we had even the earnings season wasn't necessarily as bad as people feared. But what we need now is, you know, that next development to give the, the kind of catalyst for further gains, if it's the trade agreement, some good news on Brexit, maybe, or or just a little pause for breath, you know, probably if nothing else changes, then you could expect that markets will regather their, their strength again. You know, I, I, I like to look at the sort of like people talking about this flow analysis and saying that there's still outflows from investment funds going on, even though prices are going up. It's like, but somebody must be buying, so who is it? You know, And it's just all of this cash sloshing around in the system getting put to work. What I find interesting is that the S&P is basically flat over the last five days. No sense of direction coming out of equities. Uh, I just wonder what the catalyst could be. We'll discuss that next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow. In the markets today, the FTSE firmer at the close. We add some weight to the FTSE 100, up by almost seven-tenths of 1%. The DAX firmer by a quarter of 1%. The S&P 500 all over the place in yesterday's session. A little softer today, down by a tenth of 1%. In the bond market, looking at benchmark treasuries, yields up by a single basis point. Yields down yesterday, just a little bit softer today. Yields coming up two basis points on a 10-year. On a two-year, we're up to 2.561%. And to round out the price action for you in the commodity market, pretty much unchanged on WTI and Brent. 
Brent crude, $65 and about 62 cents. WTI, $56 and about 53 cents. The main event, well, there's two of them, really. Payrolls Friday on the data front. The main event for central banks is the ECB, with many expecting the ECB to do something. One question remains, though. What? Paul Dobson with Guy and I, European Markets Managing Editor. So, Paul, overwhelmingly people expect them to cut growth forecasts, inflation forecasts potentially. Mm-hmm. To what degree is an outstanding debate? And what they follow it up with remains to be seen. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, well exactly. The market consensus is that the forecast will be cut. But... Uh how soon and how quickly they take action is is going to be the interesting one. We we've got a strong hunch. They've been pretty explicit, in fact, that they, we're building towards them offering new targeted longer term uh, loans to banks to try to push more cash into the economy, help with that uh, lending uh, and support, and also help the banks themselves maybe as a, as a sort of side motive to that. Some people, I was reading ABN AMRO, for example, also expecting them to push back their interest rate guidance as soon as this meeting. So at the moment, ESB says it, it tends to, to keep interest rates at, at current levels or lower, at least through the... Um, Oh, no, sorry, just at current levels, at least through the end of summer. Um, some people like ABN are saying maybe they're going to change summer to end of the year, uh, which would only be showing what's already priced into markets, to be honest, but would also give you a, 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 a stronger feeling of their commitment to doing what it takes to turn the economy around. Will the ECB be dovish or a hawkish? I mean, by, sort of by, by hawkish, I mean positive enough mm. to move the euro out of what has been a sensationally tight range of late. Yeah, it's it's in a bit of a torpor at the moment, isn't it? I mean, there are some wild uh, forecasts out there. People are looking for it to snap out of this uh, current range of about 112 to 116 against the dollar. Seen calls for 105 uh, as the low from uh, Stephen Jen, who's uh, you know famous for inventing the the theory of the dollar smile. But that's only in an extreme circumstance, you know, depending on what happens elsewhere and those kinds of things. It's very hard, really, to if you think that the Fed's not going anywhere and the ECB is going to deliver what's already priced into markets to see what it is that's going to catalyze a stronger move for the euro. And this uh, kind of moribund volatility is one of the big themes actually for markets this year. So, guys, something I'm thinking about going into Thursday, how will the market and investors respond if the ECB does nothing on Thursday? Do we have the 2011-2012 playbook where the market actually sells the euro down on the expectation that the ECB cannot support the economy on the continent? Or is it a question of rates being factored in as maybe drifting higher and therefore the euro strengthens? How does the FX market respond, do you think, Paul, to an ECB that does nothing on Thursday? If they if they were to do nothing, I think that the market would probably yeah to show show a little bit of a loss loss of faith. You know, it, which is interesting, isn't it? That's kind of counterintuitive. You'd expect uh, a dovish ECB to push the euro lower, but kind of if they do nothing, you know, can you see a rebound? Probably not, because you know you gotta gotta believe that they're going to do something to support the economy. So that, that's quite an interesting an interesting point. I think markets are really counting on some accommodation from the ECB. So what's priced? Some accommodation. So what's priced? It, it, my sense at the moment is mm-hmm. that we have priced a Teltro coming, but not a Teltro this time, a reasonably downbeat set of economic forecasts that Draghi points to 
but says are in the rearview mirror and therefore things are probably looking a little bit better going forward. That seems to be my sense of kind of yeah. where the market is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sound, sounds about right, doesn't it? You know, the, the ECB moves pretty slowly uh, at the best of times. There's a lot of conflicting voices within the governing council. It's not entirely sure that they're all on board. There are signs, you know, if you really want to look for them, the, the, the actual... Euro area itself is showing signs of recovery. There's stronger wage growth in Germany. We had some uh, big awards to teachers and uh, services, I think, um, this week, for example. Signs of more spending, a little bit of fiscal stimulus coming from Germany. You know, Draghi probably, you know, is going to do his favourite thing, which is bang on for as long as he possibly can about the need for the governments to do more to help the economy. You know, it's not just the job of the ECB, yada, yada, yada. Something I've I've also been thinking about, guys, and I wonder what you both think about this. The the forward guidance on rates at the moment says we won't hike rates through at least the summer of 2019. That forward guidance is totally redundant now. How does President Draghi refine that guidance without tying the hands of his predecessor? Is that something he has to think about? Without tying the hands of his successor? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah successor yeah. rather. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> exactly. Sorry, Paul. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. It's, uh, uh, but yes, you're, you're right. I mean, you don't want to lock in policy forever. I mean, the, the language at the moment is at least... Um, you know, maybe they can change it to some of the borrow some of the Fed's language that where they were using, where you know, kind of like they had these kind of indefinite time ranges, but were used with vague language, that kind of thing. You're right. Another thing that would actually be helpful is if we knew who that successor was going to be. That might give us more of an idea of what the next ECB. Uh, governing council is going to look like and what their kind of bias is likely to be as well. Um. Just in terms of of the kind of relationship that Draghi does have with government at the moment, I just just in terms of the advice that he is going to be kicking out at the moment is is the advice going to be you guys need to get your fiscal houses in order. Mm-hmm. But I'm particularly wondering what the story is in Italy at the moment because I suspect he's going to get some some questions about Italy. How do you think he's going to dodge those as well? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, well, being an Italian makes it particularly awkward for Draghi. I think that I think that you know he will repeat generalized views on the the need for fiscal stability, and he'll switch it back and look at Germany and say, you know, those that that can afford to should be spending more to boost the economy as well. I wonder how much that will be heard in Europe's capitals. Brexit, probably another theme as well. Paul, thank you very much indeed. Paul Dobson joining us on the markets. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, 5.30 in the city of London. Let's talk a little bit about what is going on in the markets. You've got John Farrow in, over in New York. The S&P uh, is currently trading down by one-tenth of one percent. Uh, the European market's finishing a little bit more positive. But what uh, joins these two sets of markets together right now is the fact that both are going nowhere in a hurry. Let me tell you that the S&P over the last five days is down by, you guessed it, one-tenth of 1%. Equity markets don't have a great deal of direction right now, but I assure you that over the last next 30 minutes, we're going to be providing you with a little bit of direction. That direction now coming from Mr. Charlie Pellet. 
I thank you very much. And here's what's going on. Bank of England Governor Mark Carney says the UK has made, quote, constructive developments in preparing for a no-deal Brexit, though the economic impact of that would still be substantial. Carney telling a House of Lords committee today authorities have taken steps to protect derivatives markets, reduce financial risk, and minimize trade frictions. J.P. Morgan Chase, the biggest American bank, says it will break off its relationship with the private prison industry after deciding it's too risky. Diesel USA, the premium denim and accessory brand whose five pocket trousers dominated pop culture in the 90s and 2000s, has filed for bankruptcy in the U.S. And Eurostar International, which operates passenger trains through the Channel Tunnel, says bookings between Paris and London are higher for the days after Brexit than they were a year ago. CEO Mike Cooper says demand on the route is, quote, up north of 10% around March 29th, when Britain is due to quit the European Union. Latest from the news desk, and uh, Jonathan Farrow, back to you. Charlie Pennett, thank you very much. Really pleased to say that Tim Mahidi of Bloomberg Economics has joined us to talk about some of the recent data we've had in America. And some of that recent data, Mr Mahidi, is absolutely fantastic. The non-manufacturing ISM, very close to a 60 handle of 59.7 and adding some serious weight to the previous month. This is a surprise for most people, I assume. Absolutely. I mean, it blew the pants off expectations this morning. It was higher than every forecast on consensus except for one, and it was only slightly below that. So to say this is a strong number is definitely underselling it. Um, We've talked about before the strength of the econ- uh, the strength of the rec- of the expansion, right? We've talked about we got some weak data, some weak survey data at the end of the year. We've kind of been waiting for this pop to happen. We're starting to see it now. I think what we've learned from this is that we still are on strong footing here in the United States, and that I think this is going to start raising questions about when the Fed's going to start moving again. If this kind of thing continues to happen, strong labor market, strong ISM numbers, um, and strong uh, GDP growth. Is the data that we're getting out of the uh, U.S. economy right now consistent? I think it is. I mean, th- this is the problem with, with looking at one month of any one particular data point, especially when it's survey data, which you know we tend to put less of a weight on than your hard labor market or GDP data. But I think you're looking at all you know all signs are pointing towards uh, towards go towards above trend growth, and that's just because we had that equity market sell off at the end of the year, which spooked some people, understandably. It was it was quite long and deep, and now that we've some had some recovery in that, um, and the Fed has moderated its communication strategy to talk about, hey, Mr. Market, we're listening to you. Um, I think that folks are feeling better and the the, the underlying fundamentals are starting to show. Any hawks on the FOMC that are going to get an itch over the next couple of months? I mean, I think Mr. Rosengren, Dr. Rosengren's already getting that itch. He had a comment um, about several meetings away from needing to maybe raise rates again. I think the trigger finger is definitely getting itchy. It's going to continue to do that if, let's say, growth in the first quarter comes in above expectations. I think the communication with some of those folks is going to switch. And let's keep in mind, the dispersion, the, the, the tails of the FOMC this year are fatter. And so you've got more doves and more hawks and less moderates. How do they communicate a shift if one is coming? Well, it's interesting. I think it depends on where you're sitting, right? If you're one of the, if you're Rosengren up in Boston, um, as we've seen Buller do over the the lifetime of the expansion, you kind of sit, you go out and you push your case publicly, um, but you don't necessarily, um, you don't necessarily dissent. 
uh, the core of the FOMC, your Williams, your Clarida, your Powell, those folks are likely to stay mostly on message. But you can see, I think, you know, if, if those one of those three starts to come out and sound a little bit different than they've been sounding, a little bit more hawkish, especially Williams, who recently said that he could see no rate hikes this year, then I think that's an indication that the core of the FOMC is, is leaning maybe more hawkishly. It's going to be really interesting, the next meeting. And I mean the March meeting as well, Tim, because expectations are so dovishly priced now from the market's position. How does the Federal Reserve meet those dovish expectations? Does the dot plot come down to the idea that there are no hikes in the market in, in, from the Federal Reserve for the rest of the year? It's going to be, again, it's going to be really interesting. The Mar- I mean, March was already, at, well, at one point was sandwiched between the trade deadline and maybe a hard Brexit. We've got the trade deadline push, but I don't think it changes the uncertainty because as you pointed out, we've had communication that sounded more dovish and then markets adjusted. Um, I don't think the dots are going to come down a whole lot. I think what we saw in December was some adjustment of expectations. I wouldn't gather those come down a lot, You, but as the year goes on, you might start to see, again, the distribution widen, which is where we were in, in uh, September. And so I think that's been an indication that there's dis- there's growing dissent on the on the committee would a trade deal tip them over the edge no nah, i don't think so i mean it, it's it's makes for good headlines but we really haven't seen a whole lot of impact so far other than a price shock that's now looking like it's dissipating now i will say this that the latest round of tariffs that are being discussed they're increasing the rate that will have a, like some impact on on productivity and, and empl- or sorry on production and employment but i don't think it's going to be the kind of thing that keeps them from raising rates if everything else is flashing green really interesting interview with the secretary of state mike pompeo with the sinclair broadcasting group a little bit earlier on, I'm not sure if you guys got to see this. It didn't actually make that many headlines, but it was quite revealing when he was asked the following question. Will the president walk away from a China deal if it's not a perfect deal? To which the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, replied yes, but then went on to say this. You saw us this past weekend in Hanoi. The president's determined to make sure that he protects his first client, his first obligation to the American people. In this case, the American farmer... This has to work for America. If it doesn't work, we'll keep banging away at it. We're going to get to the right outcome. I'm confident that we will, and I've been around these trade talks with China. Things are looking good. I think things are in a good place, but it's got to be right, and we may have to make sure it truly provides a lasting benefit to American farmers. Now, there's two ways. In fact, there's multiple ways of looking at this, but I'll I'll offer you two, Tim. One is that this was about an audience. Sinclair Broadcasting Group maybe talking to the base, maybe the Midwest states, the reliant on a decent trade deal for the American farmer, or two, it gives you an idea of what the president perceives is a perfect deal, which is a big boost to agricultural products and a narrowing of the trade gap, because in nothing, in a response about the, quote, perfect deal, there was nothing in that response from the Secretary of State about technology transfer or IP theft. How revealing is that quote to you? John, I'm going to take door number two. Um, yeah, I do. I do think it's quite revealing, and I think it shows that the White House has a very limited and archaic view of what the American economy is. Um, and ironically, a lot of the pain being felt by the American farmer has 
happened because of this trade war and has required subsidies from the federal government because the Chinese have stopped importing things like soybeans. And so it's a little bit like creating a problem to then fix it, um, which I think, again, has been an MO of this White House for a while. But in terms of whether he'll walk away from a deal, I think that that's possible. I do think that he sometimes let the, lets the perfect be the enemy of the pragmatic. Um, I don't think that would have a large impact on, on where the expansion is going. It will definitely hurt confidence. But I mean, we're in the point now where we just every day is a new confidence shock and the economy just keeps on moving. So I'm not sure if that's going to be enough. We're going to carry on the conversation. Tim's going to stay with us. We'll get a take on what is happening as well around the world. We need to talk a little bit about China and what its economy is doing right now. Uh, the conversation continues. This is The Cable. We're live from New York and London. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening at 5.40 in the city of London. Uh, over in the United States, uh, two major retailers have reported numbers today, Target and Coles, both coming out with solid sets of numbers, margin a little weak over a Target, uh, but both numbers being taken reasonably well. They are remodeling their businesses, they're revamping their businesses, they're trying to get more online coming through. What does this tell us about the state of the U.S. consumer right now? As we've just been discussing, we've got very solid data coming out of the services side of the economy. Tim Bahidi, Bloomberg economist, joining us now. Tim, if you look at these numbers that are coming through from the retailers right now, what are you seeing within them? Because the December retail sales number was very poor, and these businesses got battered before Christmas as well. Now they're bouncing back strongly. Yeah, it was an interesting dip in December. I think that took a lot of people um, by surprise. I like to look through some of these swings. I mean, if that if that had happened again in January, we got two or three months of this, I'd be very concerned. Um, that, Like you pointed out, the rebound in some of the these companies in, in equity markets is, is definitely a good sign. Um, the other interesting piece, though, is that we consumer sentiment, which comes out of Michigan, it's been going on for a very long time. Uh, we host the call here at Bloomberg, and I had a conversation with Professor Curtin, who looks at the numbers, and he was saying it's interesting because consumers have in, have improving pr- uh, views on their prospects for wage growth, but they're actually th- um, not so certain they're going to continue to buy durable goods in the future. It's a very strange place to be. I think I'm getting more money. I'm not going to buy stuff. And so I think that is something to keep your eye on going into this year. That is a sign that maybe there's some moderation happening um, in consumer sentiment, which would filter through to, to actual... Um, purchases and sales. I, I do think that the back half of this year, the retailers that have done well, there's a really strong execution story associated with those specific retailers. I think more broadly, if we see anything and can take anything out of the poor numbers for the consumer in the back half of the year, back back few months of the year, just the association of the market fallout with the American consumer. In the UK, I don't think we quite appreciate how closely correlated the link is between consumer confidence and what happens in the market. Guy, for you and I, that's just not something we grew up with. Um, here in the United States, it is such a powerful factor in the way but, consumers behave. But why? So here's my question why. I've never really understood this. Is it because the media spends a lot of time banging on about the the link between the market and the economy, i.e. when you are deluged with news about, oh, the market's rallying, everything's great? Or is it because people actually take an active view of what's going on in terms of their portfolios? And I know the, the US consumer probably owns more stocks as a percentage, but presumably those are for long-term savings. So I'm kind of curious as to this relationship, how this transmission mechanism actually works. Is it the media or do people go beyond that? 
Well, so I like to think about it this way. If you're building a house, the foundation of this consumer confidence house is the is a labor market. So when they go out and they ask these folks, what do you think your life's going to be like in a year? How do you think you're going to feel? And they say, well, I've got a good, I've got a job. Everyone I know has got a job and my wages are growing. Um, they, they say, I think I'm going to be doing pretty well. That's generally where you think um, how that starts. Um, and then they think, well, I'm going to buy more. But that's not to say that there aren't sh- movements around the news cycle. I mean, we've seen this in in uh, in February with the shutdown. It really hammered consumer confidence and consumer sentiment. It, the equity markets did a, not a similar move, but there was definitely a downward move. So the news definitely affects these things, but I think those are transitory um, issues. The, the underlying strength from the consumer is usually related to the labor market. Do you get the sense that people just check their pensions every month, how much they go up and down? Is there much more access to the 401k here than maybe we have back over the UK with um with our pensions? That's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about that. Um, they definitely break out. I will go back and look. They definitely break out different age groups um, in the survey, and so I would I would guess that that's probably true for your older older earners or folks that are in retirement. They're probably checking every day and going, "Oh, market's up. I feel good. My pension, you know, my my four hundred one k is doing well." Um, I think for for uh, lower income earners, that's probably less important. But then again, you know, a lot of these folks that are in the in the labor market now have not known a recession, so they're feeling pretty good. Tim, great to catch up with you. Tim Mahady, Bloomberg economist. Guy and I will be with you in the following segment. We'll run you through what you need to be watching for through the next couple of days, including the ECB and payrolls Friday, and we'll bring you a little bit of an outlook from BNP Paribas as well. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, 5.48 in the City of London. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio and on all of your Bloomberg devices. Um, We're not done with this week yet. There are probably the major events of the week still to come. John, we've got the Beige Book tomorrow, trade balance data as well, but then we get into the, one of the main events, uh, the ECB rate decision, plus the press conference, plus the staff projections. Uh, fascinated to see exactly how Draghi wiggles out of this one. Uh, I suspect he will probably find a way, but nevertheless, that uh, staff projection story is going to be quite negative, uh, and I suspect he's probably going to hint at some sort of teltro. And then we get the payrolls. It's payroll Friday. That's going to be another potentially market-moving story as well. be nice to see some movement in the markets, because at the moment... We're not getting very much. Looking forward to all of that. And I agree with you, Guy. Volatility has been so subdued cross-asset. In fact, with the exception of maybe credit markets and equities, in, in the main markets, fixed income for Treasury, specifically core government bonds, foreign exchange, really, really narrow trading ranges over the last month or so. We talked to uh, Dan Katsif of BNP Paribas a little bit earlier on about the FX market. We discussed the strong dollar and a range-bound market that we've been stuck in over the last month or so. Take a listen to this. You know, from the U.S. perspective, uh, there's been a longstanding uh, press to get uh, dollar China moving in a more market-driven way. Uh, lately, though, the message that we're getting from press reports, at least, is that uh, there may be some room for uh, an agreement with, with China to kind of uh, allow the currency to be uh, stable around the current range as part of the, the trade talks that are happening. So it's, a, man- it's a managed currency. It's still a man. It's not a floating currency. 
I mean, it's increasingly more market determined for sure, um, and it you know moves uh, much more than it did uh, right. you know, ten years ago or so. But it has still aspects of a managed currency. Okay, Daniel, with your great experience, I want to get the dollar ambiguity uh, right now. What is a BNP Paribas call on the U.S. dollar? Structurally weaker over the next year or two. Uh, we think as the Fed, you know, continues to be on hold and the markets start to prepare for Fed easing at some point, uh, the dollar is going to be very vulnerable. For now, though, uh, we're in a very uh, pro-carry environment across markets. Volatility has fallen across markets. Investors are looking for carry-type strategies. And right. within the G10, the dollar benefits as a higher yielding currency. That's called doing a Kansas jargon alert. Carry on my wayward son. What is carry? Mm-hmm. What is carry? Well, it's simply the uh, strategies that look for a higher yielding um, asset at a time when market volatility is low. When volatility is low, uh, it's a good strategy to look for, for yield, and, and investors like those types of strategies. Uh, the danger is that at some point, uh, volatility picks up very quickly, and you see a rush to uh, exit from positions like that. Any reason so we think, for vol to yeah, pick up anytime soon, Dan? Well, you know, we can think of any number of things that could be disturbing for uh, markets. Uh, and it seems, you know, sometimes strange that uh, volatilities are so low given all the uncertainties uh, we see in trade policy, geopolitics, uh, the economic outlook, et cetera. So it wouldn't be hard to make a list of things that could uh, jar the market out of their current uh, level of low volatility. Fascinating to see cross-asset vol drive lower, Tom, in the way it has done Yeah, uh, ever the since the Federal Reserve's yeah. retreat, not just in foreign exchange, but in treasuries as well. And it leads me to an important question that a lot of people I know are asking, Dan. We've actually been very range-bound in the FX market, in the treasury market as well. Do you think we stay in that range, Dan, or are you thinking about other things? Walk me through your thinking right now. So for now, all the G10 central banks have signaled uh, patience and, and, and a desire to be on hold, and that's brought volatility down across these asset markets, and it's very hard to see um, uh, those ranges in, in G10 FX breaking. Over the more uh, medium term, maybe beyond a month or two, uh, we think the dollar is at very elevated levels, so there is scope for a big move lower, uh, which would mean these ranges break on the dollar uh, weak side. And we think that'll happen probably in the second half of the year. And market, but it could happen very quickly. When it, once it starts, it could happen very quickly. Could President Draghi stand in the way of that? Um, you know, there's not a lot of ammunition on the ECB side. They've already effectively gone on hold in their signaling. They could reinforce that a bit. Uh, but you know, the ECB is in a situation where policy never really normalized, so it's very accommodative. It's hard to signal uh, additional easing at this point, and they don't have the ability to say, oh, you know, um, we're, we're, we're going to tighten less because market's already pricing very little tightening. So he doesn't have a lot of ammunition. Daniel, what is your optimal play right now? There's a jumble, and I was really taken by the set of Chinese announcements today, but but do you recalibrate here, or do you have a trade that you've got a real belief in? Well, I think we have to respect uh, the uh, push for carry that we're seeing across markets, and so we want to uh, participate in that uh, dynamic, but we want to do it in a way that we're not taking big valuation risk, because there's kind of this uh, this uh, contradiction between wanting to be long the dollar because it's a high yielder and being scared that the dollar is going to fall back to more longer-term uh, equilibrium. We think dollar-Swiss is one pair where there is carry and where you don't have the valuation risk that you have in other dollar pairs. So we think being exposed to dollar-Swiss upside makes sense in the current environment of the, that we're going to see over the next uh, quarter. Dan, all of these trades that you're describing make me believe that what you see is an economy that reaccelerates in the months to come. Is that your base case, Dan, and why? 
Well, it's not really. I don't think reacceleration is is what we're looking for. It's more uh, stabilization at below trend uh, rate of growth in the U.S. So it's uh, not um, uh, fast enough for the Fed to resume hikes. Uh, at the same time, it's uh, not slow enough to you know get the markets really concerned about uh, crash risk and and, and pricing uh, policy easing, et cetera, right. in the in, in the in the G10. What is the bet now on dollar? You've got some great charts showing belief in long dollar short dollar or dollar stronger i should say dollar weaker what what what's the belief of the street right now i think if you look across the consensus of most forecasters it's that the dollar will be weaker over time uh, and that's i think a reflection of the relatively high valuation that we have on most of the dollar pairs and we, we think that makes sense i just think for now uh, don't be surprised if the dollar continues to hold stable and does better uh, than the forwards would imply in other words you can you can um, make money being long usd because of yeah. the yield differential but as I mentioned, dollar Swiss is a safer way to do that than euro dollar, for example. Dan Cassie with some trades there, joining us from BNP Paribas, the head of foreign exchange strategy for North America. That does it for us on the cable alongside Guy Johnson in London. I'm Jonathan Farrow here in New York as we continue to count you down to the two main events this week. The ECB coming up on Thursday, payrolls Friday coming up here in the United States. Guy and I will be back with you tomorrow to do just that. From New York and London, this was the cable. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.